Okay, so we're going to um, get rolling tonight. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up to Genesis chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible or you'd like to borrow one in the back of the pew nearby you, you will find one and you're welcome to use it. Uh, you shouldn't have any problem finding Genesis chapter 4 because it should be on the first few pages of the Bible as you open it. What we saw in the first three chapters is that God created the world, and it was good. And he made man, and he made woman in his image, and he placed them in a garden. Uh, and Eve was talked to uh, by this character known as the serpent. Uh, she ate of the one tree, broke the one command that God had given. She gave to Adam, and he ate. Uh, and then they're confronted in that context uh, we discover the consequences of that. And in terms of the whole book of Genesis, we've seen the beginning of the problem. Genesis 1 through 11 as a, as a whole is basically just to present the need that God starts to fulfill in Genesis chapter 12. We already actually saw a preview of the fulfillment in Genesis 3.15, where this cryptic promise is given, when God says that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to have an ongoing war, and I'm going to use the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. But we don't actually see God take a really direct and obvious step in that direction till Genesis chapter 12, when he calls Abraham and says, through you, Abraham. The purpose then of Genesis 1 through 11 is not only to give us a bunch of the big aspects of the beginning of history, but also to show us how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of a problem. What we have right now, if we left it as it was, if we had nothing more than Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a bad example. We have the behavior of Adam and Eve, and we see laid out in that bad example the consequences that come with it, and pretty solid incentive not to follow in their footsteps. But it doesn't end in Genesis 3. And if you read Genesis 3 through 11 carefully, you're going to see something that can only be compared to a downward spiral. It begins with Adam and Eve, but it doesn't stop there. And the reason it doesn't stop there is because what we find in Adam and Eve, as we talked about last week, is not merely an example. It's not merely a precedent. It's a problem that's not merely skin deep. It's an issue that affects and impacts all of Adam and Eve's descendants. We'll talk about that tonight, but we pick up in chapter 4, and we pick up east of the Garden of Eden. So they've been removed from the garden, and now life continues on. And this is what we read in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Now, there's a couple of important things that we need to recognize here. First, we see that the marriage begin, that begins in chapter 2 now leads to, the, to a family, right? With the birth of Cain and his younger brother Abel. But there's more to be known here um, that's worth talking about. Um, the first is, is found in the proclamation that Eve makes. She says, I have gotten a man, and in the ESV here it says, a man with the help of the Lord. The Hebrew is a lot more ambiguous and simple. It literally says, I have received a man 
the Lord. Okay? And so with the help of is the translators helping us to fill in the blank. And it's a viable blank fill-in, by the way. This is a very possible thing that what she's proclaiming is, yes, my labor was terrible. Yes, I experienced the full brunt of the curse that God has brought on us because of our sin, and yet here I have this gift, life, a child. And that, that understanding of birth, of the, the difficulty and the terror of labor and then the joy of a baby is a metaphor the Bible picks up on many, many times in other places. But there is another possibility here. It may be that she means exactly what she says, that she somehow sees Cain as the fulfillment of what God had just promised. You remember in Genesis 3 verse 15, this promise is given and it will be the seed of the woman who fixes everything, who sets everything straight. And so here Eve may be looking at the birth of a child and going, this is it. Just as God promised, here he is, our savior. Now, Cain falls short of that title. Um, But there is a tendency we have to make one of two mistakes when we read through these early chapters of Genesis. Uh, And one is to assume that our modern understanding, for example, that Genesis 3.15 is messianic that it points all the way to the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. One mistake is to say we're obviously reading that into it backwards, that we've taken something cryptic and ambiguous and we've just made it mean what we want it to mean. Um, One of the reasons I would argue against that as a side note is that we as Christians, post the birth of Jesus, we're not the first to see this verse or many others as messianic. The expectation was one that Israel was built on. And if you remember, even in the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus is born, we meet two people in the temple, Anna and Simeon, who are awaiting the fulfillment of this Messiah very proactively. They're looking, and they recognize Jesus when they see it. But even all the way back here, when we look at Eve's proclamation here, and then when we look at Noah's father, Lamech, who names Noah Rest, that's what Noah means. And he says, for he will give us rest. Now, once again, Noah falls short of that, right? What do we get in the lifetime of Noah? Not paradise, not rest, but a flood. But the expectation is already there. So one mistake is to assume we must be reading back into this what's not there. And the other is to assume that they weren't smart enough to see what these things really meant. If you read many theologians, eventually you'll come across the Latin phrase, the sensus plenor. The idea is the full sense of scripture. And the idea is that oftentimes the prophets spoke beyond what they meant. They said more than they were meaning in the moment, but there was a fuller meaning that was unpacked. And in a limited sense, I think that's a completely accurate understanding, and I could point to verses that point to that. But that doesn't downplay how often we see in the stories themselves, present tense, as first audience, an understanding of these things, okay? I'll give you one example. In Genesis chapter 22, we see as uh, Abraham has been given the son, Isaac, miraculously. And he's now grown up, Isaac, into probably a young teenager, maybe even in his early 20s. And God says, okay, Abraham, now that I've given you Isaac, I want you to give him back. I want you to take him on a mountain that I will show him. I want you to take his life. And so Abraham obediently walks through all of the motions. He ties up. Keep this in mind. I don't know what your flannel graph said in Sunday school, but he doesn't tie up a little boy. Okay, he ties up, and apparently Isaac submits to it. He ties up his son. 
he raises the knife and God calls from heaven, stops him in his tracks and he says, now, that I, now I know that you will do this. And he says, look, over there is a ram in the thicket, offer it instead. What's interesting is that when you read that story, the parallels between Isaac and Jesus are incredible. Not, not, just, not just son, son, death, death, but the verbiage of the passage. That's the first place in the Bible we find the word love. Take your son whom you love. He doesn't just refer to him as your son, he says your only son. There's just all of these things going on, but here's what's more important than that. This isn't just going, oh, that reminds me of Jesus, which is, a, by the way, a bad way to read your Bible. Okay? We don't want to see Jesus behind every rock and shrub in the Old Testament. But we do want to recognize what Paul and Peter call typology. That sometimes God prophesied through history. That things actually happened and he orchestrated them to be living, active pictures of what was coming. You'll see this word multiple times in the New Testament. We'll get there in years. Um, But here's the point. In Genesis 22, Abraham calls that mountain, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Do you hear the tense? On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Even Abraham understands that what just happened was pointing to something that comes later. And so he said, the provision is coming. He saw it himself. Okay? Here, I would argue the same thing is happening with Eve. She has that expectation. And like what is a primary problem for us in prophetic matters, we get the prophecy right and the fulfillment wrong. Right? We know what we're looking for, but we label it too quickly. And so here she says, uh, I've received a man, even the Lord. Somehow she gets what's going on. But then verse 2, and again she bore her brother Abel. Now, this also, I think, points to what I was just saying. I would, I would present this, if you will, as exhibit B, because Abel's name means empty, which is a weird name for a child, let's just be honest, especially a second child, a younger brother who's already got the complex, Right? This is the word that's used in Ecclesiastes when the author says vanity of vanities, okay? The only way that I can come to understand why she names this son Abel uh, is because she doesn't know what he's there for, right? I've already got Cain. What do I need you for? In fact, let me point to one more thing. Usually the pattern in, in Hebrew storytelling when we come to the birth of a child is she conceived and she bore. She conceived and she bore. And here we find she conceived and she bore and she bore. So it's possible some commentators believe that what we have here, like many of the characters in the book of Genesis, are twins. And so there's one conception and two brothers. And Abel isn't just a younger brother, he's just barely a younger brother. Now, to be honest, if it's the first birth and you've given birth to a child and then suddenly there's a second one, the name Abel makes sense. It's like, you know, it doesn't matter if you call him gratuity, right? It's just whipped cream on the top. It doesn't matter if the idea here is I, I, unexpected, which could be an idea here. Um, but it, it may also, and it's worth pointing this out, sometimes the names of the characters in Scripture mean more than the, name mem- uh, the namers meant them to be. Uh, And so sometimes the names end up being really validated by the life that they live. Jacob is called the heel catcher because he caught his brother's heel, but he lives up to his name, does he not? In the same way here, he may be Cain because he's not going to be around for a while or for very long, right? That, That his life is but a vapor, which is also the word Cain, or sorry, Abel, excuse me, that Abel's not going to be around for a while because surprise, surprise, Cain will kill him. Okay, so... 
So here's this expectation, here's the anticipation, but very quickly the camera pans from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel. And it won't really pan back. From here, we'll only hear of Adam again in genealogies. And so we've really officially moved on to Gen 2, right? To the second story. Notice how the story plays out. It says here, again in verse 2, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And so we have a shepherd and a farmer. Verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so what do we see here? We see at an appointed time, the brothers come bringing their offerings. One's a shepherd, so he brings a sheep. The other's a farmer, and so he brings crops that he's grown in the soil. And what we see almost, especially at first glance, seems tremendously arbitrary, does it not? It just says that one, God accepted and received, and the other he rejected. And then because of that rejection, Cain was angry. Okay? And so we have to go, well, what's, what's really going on here? And there's, there's some things in the text that might give us clues. There's the perspective of the New Testament that's very helpful. Uh, and then there's the reality of sacrifice as it's portrayed in the rest of the Pentateuch. So let's just walk through all three of those. Um, the first is in the text... Notice here that it says, uh, again in verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Okay, now even if you read forward into Leviticus, you will find the grain offering. This is a totally acceptable sacrifice in and as it stands. However, there is one unique difference. Most of the time, the grain offering is constant, or I mean, most of the time, the grain offering is labeled the first fruits. Okay? Meaning that it's not just any grain from your field, it's the first grain, it's the best grain. We see a missing parallel of that in Abel's offering. Abel brings a sheep, but he doesn't just bring the sheep, he brings the firstborn of his flock, and then on top of that it adds, and the fat portions, right? And if you read in Leviticus, you'll discover there's a heavy emphasis on all the fat belonging to the Lord. And so maybe what we're seeing here is Cain who brings just any old offering and Abel who brings one that's the first fruits, ones that's prioritizing God, one that's putting him first. It's possible. There's another possibility. When we get to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, uh, it says effectively that the difference between the two offerings is at the heart level. That Abel's offering was an offering of faith, and Cain's offering was not. In other words, maybe the reason Genesis doesn't tell us what's going on here is because it's not at the surface level, but something internal. That once again, Abel comes desiring to worship the Lord, and Cain comes out of ritual, out of practice, out of expectation, because his brother's doing it, whatever. There is another way to think about this, though. And it's the one that I find compelling, but it does, uh, does require a little bit of background. Okay? I want you to notice in verse 3 that it says, in the course of time. Now that phrase is relatively generic, and it can mean a couple of things. Sometimes it just means a year later. Other times it means in the course of time, like I'm pregnant and then the baby comes, right? A, a nine-month cycle. Whatever time you're expecting with whatever you're talking about is the course of time. Um, but it can also mean at the appointed time. And if you remember, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 that the very first life that was taken 
was an animal, as God slew an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, as God took the life of an innocent animal. And as we read through Genesis, we find this same principle of propitiation, the same principle of substitution of this innocent animal on my behalf, and especially as you get to the Old Testament law. As you get to Israel's worship, it makes very clear that they can't enter in to a relationship with the Lord without a sacrifice. It goes as far to say in the book of uh, Exodus that without blood there is no remission of sin. And so it's possible here that the reason Cain and Abel are bringing an offering is because Adam and Eve have taught them to follow the practice that God taught them. That there's already a sacrificial system in place. And the sacrificial system requires blood. And so it may be here that Abel's sacrifice is basically worship that says, here's what I have to offer you. Here's what I've made. Cain's offering is that way, but Abel's is, here's an innocent life on behalf of mine. Here's blood that was shed instead of my guilt. But we can't be sure. We can't really know. For whatever reason, Abel's sacrifice is acceptable before the Lord. And even if you want to just take that word acceptable and follow it through the Psalms and through Leviticus, you will find features of what we've already talked about being a part of that. But it comes down to, very clearly, here that's speculation, but here's what I can say with confidence. Because of what Hebrews tells us, only Abel's is an act of faith. He comes because he believes in God, because he trusts in God. And maybe Cain comes trusting in himself. Maybe he comes just going through the motions. We're not told. But that difference is there. And so, and notice another thing we're not told. We don't know how they know, right? We don't know how Abel and Cain know how their sacrifice came off, right? We can't necessarily picture God standing on the sidelines with signs like a Russian judge, you know, and scoring the event, I don't imagine that there was some sort of, uh, you know, fiery consummation of the sacrifices, although we do find those things elsewise, but they know. Cain knows, Abel knows, and Cain is angry. Now, notice what happens next. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now we're seeing the beginnings of a repetition in the pattern that we saw in chapter 3. Right? Clearly what this is is temptation. I'm assuming that you know where the story is going. And so here, what we find is Cain mad enough to murder. Right? What we find is Cain beginning to figure out what he's going to do about the Abel problem. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us specifically that Cain killed Abel because his brother's uh, actions were righteous. That was it. That's all it took. But what's different between the temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and here is that God interferes preemptively. He steps in and he says, watch out, Cain. He asks him some questions, like he asked Adam after his sin, When he says, have you eaten of the fruit? Here he interrogates Cain, but this is preemptive. Before the seed of sin has given birth to the death of his brother. And what does he say? He says, says, is it right for you to be angry? He says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? 
Once again, let me remind you here that if these questions are put in the mouth of God, it's not because God doesn't know. He's inviting in all of the hatred that Cain finds in his heart, in all of the struggle that he's having with the temptation here, he's inviting him to talk to God about it. He's engaging him with, with, for lack of a better word, preemptive confession, right? The second thing he says is he says, you have two choices before you. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Once again, I think this points to something about Abel's sacrifice in particular that Cain could see and knew. And here he's given the choice. He says, you can set this right. Just because I didn't accept this offering doesn't mean I won't accept the right offering. Just because you came with the wrong heart, you know, um, have you ever... Have you ever inadvertently done something um, and then cared about it? Like you weren't meaning to cause a problem, but now the problem's there. You feel it really greatly, right? Or, or maybe you, uh, you didn't know that it was a competition, so you didn't do your best. And now the ratings are in, and you're like, oh, man, if I'd known, I would have tried. That, the idea is here, it's, it's just this can be set right. What he's saying here is this is not irreversible. Then he contrasts, then he says, if you do it, will you not be accepted? And, on the other hand, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, there is one potential interpretation here that I want to throw out because it's worth considering. You have to understand here that the word for sin and the word for sin offering in the Old Testament are the same. And so some say what God is actually saying here is the offering's laying right at the door. But imagine with me Cain's position. Abel receives the favor of God. Cain does not. Cain can set it right by offering a sheep, but who has the sheep? His brother Abel. He has to humbly go to Abel and ask for a sheep. And so the idea may be here that he's painting a picture and saying the sacrifice you need is right outside. But when we read the rest of the sentence, it's better to read it differently than that. Because what does he say? He says that that sin, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And the idea here of desire, as Gus mentioned in his poem, is consumption. Right? The idea here is uh, sin personified as just about to consume Cain. Which is a metaphor we understand today, right? We understand being consumed by our anger. Oftentimes we excuse our behavior because we were overcome by our anger right? And that's the threat that Cain's in. That's the danger that he's in. But he says here, but you must rule over it. Now, let's talk about Mr. John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck wrote a book called The East of Eden, or uh, just East of Eden, no, no definite article at the beginning, East of Eden. And it's a very interesting book because it's basically a uh, serial retelling of these chapters here of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. And so you don't just see um, brothers and their behavior. You see brothers and their behavior, and then you see the son of one of the brothers and their behavior. And so there's this pattern going on. But the hinge of the entire book comes from this verse. Okay? The title comes from the end of chapter 3 when it says that God took them out of the garden and settled them east of Eden. Uh, but the, the hinge comes from this verse in particular. You see... Um, Samuel Hamilton and the main character have this conversation about the story of Cain and Abel, which they think between this and chapter 3 are maybe the truest things that were ever written. 
That's what Steinbeck says through his characters. And they're pondering this idea. They recognize the humanity and the similarity in our lives between this circumstance, the reality of temptation and the possibility of tremendous consequence. They see this. They feel this. But he looks at this, one of the characters does, and he says that the word here, it's desire is for you, but you must rule over it, is the word timshel. Now, if you're into modern music, then you've probably heard of this through another source, through Mumford and Sons, who have a song by the same name because they resonated with Steinbeck's book. And the authors explain that Timshell uh, doesn't mean you must rule over it, like the ESV says here, meaning that it's all completely on us, that we are responsible to fix this. Nor does it say you shall rule over it, meaning that it's all solidified and guaranteed. Instead, according to Steinbeck, the, the word Timshell means thou mayest. And so it becomes this beautiful reality of human freedom that no matter what the mess was yesterday, today you may, you can, if you want to, overcome. And to tell you the truth, the book is beautiful because it's in this context of constant failure, the pattern being repeated, and what finally breaks the pattern is the communication of this idea that even, even still, your favor isn't lost, even still, Tim Shell, you mayest. But, but a couple of things, okay? First off, Tim Shell isn't even a word, okay? And I don't mean he made it up. I mean what he's talking about is there is no, um, there is no may or shall or must in the text. This is actually the parsing of the word rule, shall rule, mayest rule. It's a single word, and so all we're talking about here is a particle. All we're talking about is a suffix, Okay? On top of that, there's no scholastic foundation for the argument that book makes at all. I've hunted. I've scoured the internet. I've talked to Hebrew scholars. I've done everything I can. And then something really helped me. I discovered a book called The Journal of a Novel, which is John Steinbeck's notes. See, when John Steinbeck wrote East of Eden, he wrote it in a big uh, three-hole-punched notebook. And on one side, to get the juices flowing, he wrote to his editor. And then once his juices were flowing, he wrote the novel on the other side. And so Journal of a Novel is actually the other half of what he wrote over the course of his journey. And it's a fascinating read. If you're interested in the process of writing a book, it's a very interesting read. But you also find in that, as he's constantly badgering his editor to help him on this hunt for Tim Shell, and you discover very quickly that this is his hunch, and he's looking for evidence. Okay. He knows what he wants to say in the book, and he's willing to use the story of Genesis because, let's just be honest, when we use other stories, it enforces our own stories. We do it all the time. That's why we're constantly rebooting stories. I'm trying not to get off track, but I'll just, just one of the things we do in that is we hijack stories. Okay? So we take Grimm's fairy tales and we retell them to tell our values. Right? We change them so they're different than the original story, but now they fit the meaning that would have been f completely out of place to Grimm or his brother. In the same way, Steinbeck seems to do the same thing. But let me add to that, because what we're really talking about here is not merely a proper understanding of Genesis 4, uh, verse 7, but a theological underpinning of the meaning of life, of how life is lived. 
right? There's great freedom in the idea of Timshel, of thou mayest, of wherever you're at, it can still be fixed. He says in another place, he sums it up so well, he says, I believe that not all men have been destroyed. One, it's a very bad idea to formulate your theology on a single verse, let alone a single suffix, okay? And if you try and make a case that that's the idea that the whole Bible presents, you're going to struggle. Two, two, although it sounds like good news, not only is it bad news, but it's the exact bad news that this passage is trying to present. Why is Cain killing Abel because Adam and Eve? And we'll see that this continues. And that doesn't mean that human nature is so tainted we will be the worst and fulfill every possible bad, right? It doesn't even mean that in this particular instance there was no possibility for Cain. Clearly God is giving him the option. But Cain is a descendant of Adam. And so Cain has what theologians call a sin nature. You see, there was a theologian that believed, like, uh, like Steinbeck, that we mayest on any occasion. His name was Pelagius. And Pelagius believed, like Steinbeck, that not all men are ruined, and so he believed that not all men need a savior. It's only if we screw up that we need a savior, but you really can live a perfect life. It's hard and it's difficult, but it's possible. And Augustine made his career, if you will, on showing how unbiblical that idea was developing this idea that we call the original sin and showing the consequence of Adam and Eve that it's something that we can't fix. And even here, I want to point out to you that he, by God interfering, by God asking these questions, he is availing himself to Cain. If Cain's going to get out of this mess, even in the context of this single moment, it's going to be solely with God's help. It's going to be by identifying as a sinner and having something innocent die in his place. It's going to be by offering the sacrifice he was unwilling to, by coming to God in a place of need instead of a place of putting God in need and saying, look what I brought you. Look at how great I am. Here's what I made you. Aren't you impressed? But actually, even in Steinbeck's book, this is not good news. And this is the trouble with Tim Shell. Because yes, his characters may always be able to deal with the shell and not all men are destroyed, but that's not going to help you deal with Kate. Kate is a character who in Steinbeck's journals, he says, personifies Satan. She's this constant temptress and destructiveness. But oddly, in the context of this book where he lays out all of this hope, he starts the story of Kate by saying, I believe that some people are born monsters. And there is no possible redemption for Kate. Kate because there's something inherently wrong with her, something she was born without that makes her less than human and makes her the way she is. She cannot be saved because she's not a sinner, she's a monster. And see, when you, when you come to a concept of Maist, when that's your theology that says, you really can do it on your own, inherently you will have to make a separation in humanity and say, these are the ones who can do it because they're truly human and these are the subhuman. These are the monsters. These are the inexplicable. It's only the message of the Bible that says, actually, both are true. All of you have fallen. All of you can't do it on your own. But God is willing and able to fix that. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Don't give in, Cain. But that's not what happens. Verse 8. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Do you see the quickness and the brevity of how we're told this? Right? We, we don't, I mean, this is so different than modern television. There's no episode devoted entirely to the planning of it. There's no orchestrating of it. How different is this than the Count of Monte Cristo? Right? Which, to be honest, is partially long because Dumas was paid by the word. And so it's, it's a long journey because it's, it's an expensive journey for Dumas. He makes a lot of money that way. But nonetheless, it's years of plotting and planning. The reason we say revenge is a dish best served cold is because it makes better sense when it's thought through. But that's such a modern idea. The author of our book here, he doesn't want to give us the details. There's no griminess or dirtiness to this. It's very unvisceral. There's no gore. It's just simply put as fast as it could. He talked to his brother. They were out in the field, and he killed him. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain. Notice that. Not only does God speak beforehand, but now he speaks after. And notice his posture. Where is Abel, your brother? Again with the interrogation. Again with trying to elicit a confession. He says, where is Abel, your brother? Now, how did Adam respond to that? He blamed Eve, right? But listen to how Cain responds. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you hear the tone there? Do you hear the attitude? Right? Adam was just afraid. Cain is belligerent. Right? His way of covering it up is not just to hide in the bushes. He's, he's going to just try and make God's interrogation ridiculous. Am I responsible for my brother? In fact, he's probably making a pun here because keeper is a common word used for shepherd. Do I have to shepherd the shepherd? But just as it was foolish for Adam and Eve to play a game of hide-and-seek with God, here Cain, he can't hide what he's done. What does God say? Verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood that you shed calls for justice. I hear it calling. This idea of... um, of a God who cares about bloodshed, of the taking of innocent life, doesn't end in Genesis. All the way at the end in the book of Revelation, we find martyrs who are shown as standing under the throne of God and crying out, when? When will you avenge us? When will you make this right? When will you bring justice as you've promised? And broader here than just innocent shed blood is the clear reality of consequence. If we didn't already know it from Adam and Eve and the because you have done this so, here there's a record. It's seen. It's noted. It's paid attention. The New Testament authors use the image of sin as being financial, as a debt, right? And the accounts are being taken. This is the thing that we have to recognize. It's the reason why we can't just come to God with a clean slate. It's why we can't just come to God and make an offering that makes up for everything else because inherently we come with hands covered in blood. Inherently we come with injustice behind us. And the author of Hebrews picks up in this the best way because in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 he says that the, the blood of Jesus in the new covenant cries out better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out for justice, 
for consequence to the sins for, that we've committed. It cries out for judgment. And Jesus' blood cries out, it's been paid. It's been finished. It's been taken care of. But here, he knows uh, that Cain has killed his brother. He feels, he senses, he keeps record of the blood crying out from the ground, verse 11. And now you were cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Remember here, Cain is a farmer. And basically God says, now that you've shed blood on the earth, it will no longer bear fruit for you. Notice also the escalation here. It was the ground that was cursed in Genesis 3, but it's Cain who's cursed against the ground here. It's a specialized curse. It's unique for Cain. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so here, not only we see Adam and Eve lose paradise, but they have a home east of Eden. Cain loses his home. He becomes a wanderer. He becomes a nomad. When he does settle, he settles in the land of Nod, which literally means wander. Even his home is a wandering Um, And look at how Cain responds, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Escalation again. Cain talks back and he says, you're unfair. This is too much. He continues, he says, verse 14. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And he says, you've just given me a death sentence. Now, notice, notice how much sense even his feeling here makes. What does he expect to happen to him now that it's known that he's a murderer? He, he feels like his life is forfeit. There's such a natural thing to this that would it be any surprise to you that, that somebody who snuck out, plotted, and killed someone would be afraid that the same thing could happen to them? And it's not just because of the blood crying out to the ground or the conscience crying out in Cain's heart. It's the fact that, you know, what's to stop this from happening to me? And wouldn't you expect that the God who is just, the one who proclaims later an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, wouldn't you expect to say, what do you expect, Cain? Yes, that's exactly what should happen. And there will come a time in chapter 9 where he'll lay out that government is in its entire existence is owed to the need for when innocent blood is shed so that there will be consequence. We'll get there. But here, God responds to the fears and notice what he does. Verse uh, 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. What does he say here? He says, your death matters to me just as much. There's justice being meted out here by God, but there's no room for vengeance. There's no room for a vigilante to take care of the Cain problem. There's no room for blood killings and family wars, right? Cain's afraid that one of his other brothers is going to do the same thing to him. And God says, no. And to make sure of it, to make sure that Cain's aware of his presence and his promise, he gives him a mark, and we're not told what the mark is. But recognize what the mark is here for. It's not to mark Cain as a murderer, or an outcast, or a pariah. It's to mark him as somebody that God will protect. To mark him as somebody who, if you murder, there will be consequences. Here's the point. Why does God not just go, you took your brother's life, now I'm going to take yours? 
because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what we find over and over again in the book of Genesis, in Exodus, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is that God is patient. He gives opportunity to repent. When we get to the history of Israel, the prophets are going to say, here's what's coming because of your sin, and then it's not going to come for 120 years. Because God is waiting for them to turn around. In the book of Joel, Joel lays out and he says, all of these things have happened to you. Here's the things that are coming, but even now, if you repent, not only will the judgment to come not come, but he says, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And so here he sends Cain away, but he sends him with protection. Verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so technically here, we're now east of east of Eden. We're seeing a progression here. The author wants us to feel this motion that's, you know, geographically away from the garden and theologically away from God. Next in verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. I told myself I wasn't going to address this, but where did Cain get his wife? It's obviously one of his sisters, okay? And that shouldn't be weird or creepy to you, even if you're not a Christian and you feel like that somehow invalidates the origin story. Evolution doesn't give you any better of an answer, right? The, the reality here is that life begins with a single family, and so their children marry and have kids, and their children, children, and the diversity that comes through life comes as the story is told. But he takes one of his sisters away with him, She conceives, and he bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, that's weird. Cain the wanderer builds a city, and some commentators are so bothered by this, they change the Hebrew to say that Enoch built the city and called it after himself, which is just as weird, and it's definitely not what this verse says. So why is it that Cain is building a city here? Is is this um, from some aberrant source, and it doesn't line up with what we just read? Is Cain somehow here rebellious, going, wander me? No, I'm going to establish myself. I don't think so. What I think is most likely here is that Cain doesn't believe God's promise. He doesn't feel safe as a wanderer, so he builds his own protection. And the reason that resonates with me is because it's a repeated refrain throughout the scriptures. God comes to the son, um, the son of Solomon, and he says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I'm splitting it and I'm giving it to another. And so he comes and he anoints this new king. And unfortunately, one is Jeroboam and the other is Rehoboam. So it's very confusing. But he comes to, I believe, Rehoboam and he says, you will be the king over these tribes. But Rehoboam doesn't believe God enough to trust him. So he goes, man, you know what's going to happen? If they keep going to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to go back to the other king. So I'm going to form these calves and they're going to worship in these places and I'm going to keep them in my land. What is that? It's not believing the promises of God. I would say Cain's doing the same thing here. So he establishes a city, and then we get his genealogy. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujiel, Mahujiel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of other, the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and had livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. So what do we see here? We see a civilization. We don't just see a family gathered and living, we see a city, and we see in that city innovation. We see um, 
As the line is followed, we get to Lamech, and Lamech has sons, and those sons do stuff. Stuff that we can point to now and say begins there. We see an iron worker and a musician, and a, um, the word here is not the same one used for shepherd, like Abel. Um, the, the word here is... is um, Uh, have livestock. It means that his life and trade is much bigger than just shepherds to feed the family. He's, he's a leather worker. He's, you know, um, he's handling all sorts of animals and these types of things. And it mentions all of these things. Um, and we have to go, well, why? Why is this being told? Now, the first thing we're going to see um, uh, is that it wants us to hear about Lamech. Because Lamech is clearly a descendant of Cain. We'll get to that in just a second. But also, there's another thing that, that needs to be referenced here, and, and that's the fact that all of these things the author feels are of note. They're accomplishments. They're, they're valuable. And you could look at these things, and you could take a very negative view and, and have a negative view of the city and go, see, it begins here. And music is clearly evil because it begins in the line of Cain. And livestock and leatherworking, the fashion industry is totally out of, right? You could do these things, but the author doesn't do that. He doesn't present those for those reasons. In fact, I think this is probably the earliest illustration of what theologians sometimes call common grace, which is the fact that God gives good gifts to bad people, that God gives good gifts to people who will never receive or know him, that we shouldn't be surprised as Christians if we find better musicians who aren't Christians or better artists or better architects or better thinkers because God gives graciously and fully. And at the same time, we also find the things in this city, in this civilization that we would expect. Take Lamech, for example. It says here that Lamech took two wives. This is the beginning of polygamy. He just looks around and he goes, well, I have one wife. Why can't I have another? And so he marries another woman. And it's worth referencing here, although we'll find polygamy even in the lives of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it never goes well for any of them. And here with Lamech, it's, it's pointed to and it's problematic as well. It's not what we find in Genesis 2, that for this reason a man shall leave his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But it's reported here in Genesis because that's what comes with human beings who live far from God. Not just innovation in the positive sense, but innovation in the sinful sense. If you read a lot of science fiction these days, there's really only one point that we've been harping on for the last 20 years. And it's the, the idea of a twofold advancement, technological and depravity. And so if you watch the dystopians, it's always incredible technology, taking us across the universe or making it so that we have robot servants and then culture has degraded into almost being subhuman. That's really what we see pointed to here. That's the nature of human life. Dystopia isn't just about a fear of our future, it's a fear of who we really are. And I have this hunch. I, I don't have any way to prove it. I don't think anyone in the world could prove it, but I have this hunch that for every technological innovation we've made that saves lives in any given century, it's perfectly matched by the technological innovation we've made to take them away. And so it's no surprising that modern medicine and the atomic bomb are so closely knit together because technology isn't moral positive or moral negative. Technology is merely in the hands of people who are a mixture of both common grace and original sin. 
And so we can use it to great good and we can also use it to great evil. And so collectively, historically, we do both. And that's what we find here in Cain's civilization. We find the beginning of music, which later Israel will take wholeheartedly and say, this is a way that we can worship God. But we also find the beginning of polygamy, and it will be a constant stumbling block for Israel and for humanity as a whole. Then second, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is 77-fold. What happens here? Okay, first off, this is poetry. And so you need to understand here, this is not Lamech confessing to two murders when he says that I've killed a man and I've also killed a young man. He's saying I've killed a man and then he clarifies that the man was young. This is called parallelism, and if you read it in the Psalms, you'll see that the Psalms happen in couplets. And so the second line builds on the top of the first. And so what he's saying here is basically that he's killed a man, and when he reveals that it's a young man, it's not a very honorable thing anymore, is it? Right? And on top of that, notice that there's no reciprocity here. He doesn't say, a man threatened my life, he wounded him, and I took his life. And then, on top of that, instead of going to God, he takes the principle And he says, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, then me seventyfold. And most likely, because there's no reference to God here, this isn't any cry for justice. This is a a man who in his full posture is saying, I can take care of myself. Let's see if anyone will try and avenge this young man. That's what reads most likely here. But once again, we see a progression that the murder of Abel doesn't end with Cain, that there's now not merely precedent that he can point to, but there's blood flowing through these veins. There's history repeating itself. And so here ends the communication, the line of Cain. This is another principle we'll see in the genealogy. It'll constantly detour to finish the story of certain characters and then get back on track. And so where do we leave things? We left Adam and Eve with no Cain, because he's a murderer and has been banished, and no Abel because he's dead. So what about God's promises? And what do we read here in verse 25? And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has pointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we see the line restarted here, and in that last line, when it says people began to call upon the name of the Lord, most likely that references worshiping God corporately. And as we continue through the study, I'll try and point this out in the months to come, but we'll see this over and over again. When it says that people called upon the name of the Lord, the idea here is collective. We already saw sacrifices, right? So it's not that God was suddenly known or discovered. It's not that religion begins here in chapter 4. It's that they are big enough that they gather. But I want you to notice here, what's the mark of Cain's descendants? There's accomplishments. But what's the mark of Seth's descendants? This is where they began to call upon the name of the Lord. What we're seeing is that the relationship that Abel had with God is replaced in Seth's line, and it continues. Okay. Now, Chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now this is the repeated refrain that we see in the book of Genesis, the toldot, right? Uh, The generations, and so we saw the generations of the heaven and earth, now we get Adam, and it'll continue on ten more times. These are the sections that make up the book. 
And here it turns to Adam and Eve's descendants. But I want to just reference the fact that this is the only place where it refers to this as being a book. This is the book of the generations. And so most scholars believe that what we have in Genesis chapter 5 is an incredibly old family record. That the other generations are well-known stories, have been preserved and passed on, but this is a document that's been included for us to inspect. That's what seems to be meant by the word here, book, which is a little bit more broad than, you know, like a book with pages. It just means written down. Now, I notice it begins and it doubles back on the story. It says here, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and he named them man or mankind, if you like. When they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so we see the first generation here and it sets a precedent for us. In fact, it bridges the two things, what was just said and what's about to come. As Adam and Eve were created in God's image, here we see that Adam fathers Seth in his own image. Okay? And so once again, we see this continuation of the line, of the purpose that God has for humanity in Seth. But also we find here a pattern that we'll see over and over again in the passage, which is, And -and so-and-so was born, and they lived this long and had a son, and they lived this much longer, and then they died. And it begins here with Adam, and it's completed uh, in uh, verse 3 again. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Before we address the obvious question, let's read the next one to see the pattern repeat itself. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Okay, and so the pattern repeats itself. And what's so surprising about it? The duration of the lives, right? They're incredibly long. In fact, the longest one on the list is a guy named Methuselah who, who ranks in 969 years, you know. But everyone on the list lives hundreds of years, Not decades, but hundreds of years. And so we have to go, well, what's going on here? And interestingly enough, when we get to the next genealogy in chapter 10, the one that comes right after the flood, we're going to see a severe decrease in age. And so some of the answers I have for you will come later. But it's interesting to note a few things. First, the Hebrews are not the only one who look back on ancient history and remember in their writings a time where people were living much longer. We have lots of documents that point to the same thing. Um, second, we have to ask what to do with this document as a whole. And so, so we'll get to that, but let's read the rest of it first. Uh, verse 9. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after his father Canaan 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 950 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahaliel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, 
After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, do you see how the pattern changes there? You get a hint of it as you're reading, because you're expecting them to say, and he died, and he keeps talking. And he adds this phrase, Enoch walked with God, and then he's given us a full age of time, and then he gives us the punchline, and he says here uh, that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Okay, now intentionally, in the way this is written, we have expectations. We see a pattern, and it's one that the author is intentionally trying to make, right? What begins with Adam and Eve? For surely, if you eat of the tree of the garden, you will die. And it's not just Adam and Eve who die. It's Seth. Even Seth who in those days they began to call on the name of the Lord and he died, and Seth's son, Enosh, and so on and so forth. And what we see in the list is death. In fact, Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 5 and listen to what he says. Here he's talking about the consequence of Adam on all of our lives. And he doesn't just point to it as a bad example. He doesn't just point to it as a precedent. But this is what he says. He says, For if because of the one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man through Jesus Christ. He goes on in this passage. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, earlier on in verse 13, he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So what does he say? He says, look, before Moses gets there, there is no revealed law. There is no thus saith the Lord. There are no commandments. There is internal conscience very clearly. Whatever the knowledge of good and evil means in Genesis chapter 3 has implications for that. Cain knows that he's done wrong and he proves it by being so evasive and trying to blame everybody else in these types of things. Lamech does it by defending himself. We see this pattern. But what does he say here? Even those who didn't sin in the same way of Adam, they still died. Right? And so that's one of the things we're clearly supposed to get from Genesis chapter 5 is the inevitability of human death. That the problem that we see in Adam and Eve is a human problem. That there's something about life that makes it not possible to go on living. But when we get to Enoch, we find something different. And once again, it's not descriptive. Where we'd like it to be descriptive, where we'd like to know why, where we can sign up where we'd like to understand exactly what it means when it says, and suddenly he was not, for God took him. But it doesn't tell us. But it does say here that Enoch walked with God. And this phrase, to walk with God, is used constantly in the Old Testament to speak of inherently an intimate relationship with God. And when you look at Enoch on the timeline, he's removed right before the flood. Most of the other timelines either die before the flood or some of them are terminated in the year of the flood. Nobody on this list, except for Noah and his sons, survive the flood. Okay? Everyone before either dies before or dies literally, if you do the math, the year the flood comes. Because we'll see this next week. It's there. It's written down for us. Um, but Enoch is just removed. He's just taken. 
the only parallel we have to this in the entirety of the Bible is the prophet Elijah, right? Who serves and does his ministry and God calls him out to a wild place and a chariot of fire descends and takes him away and there's no death there. We could spend a lot of time trying to fill in the blanks, but it's interesting here that Enoch, like Lamech, is the seventh generation. And so most likely, the important thing the author wants us to get is the contrast. That here we have Lamech, who's very much a son of Cain. And then we have Enoch, who knows God so intimately and so closely, he somehow evades death. God just takes him home. He just skips that chapter, if you will. Not only that, but his son, Methuselah, bears the longest life. And so if one of the emphases that's being made here has something to do with the relationship between righteousness and longevity, which is an Old Testament emphasis, Moses lives to a ripe old age, then not only Enoch, but his son, when Methuselah, verse 25, had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of the Methuselah were 696 years. Sorry, 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So what do we find here? That expectation that God's going to set things right is still alive. And Lamech names his son relief, rest. He names him in hope and he says, now is coming. Now is the time that things are going to be set right. And I'll be frank with you, Lamech is incorrect. He's wrong. Now is coming judgment with the life of Noah. But here we change from the single son lineage of 10 generations. And we see in verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So if we were just drawing a tree, it's one, 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 and then it spreads out to three and it stops before Noah dies. What have we just done? We've time traveled, right? We've moved to the next event in the story and he's taken us down the line. Now, why is this here? It's the first, but it is not the last genealogy. Why should we care about these men who the author doesn't care about enough to tell us anything else about his life except who his son's name was, okay? One of the reasons is because of the promise, One of the reasons is because there's a line that God is threading from Eve to the Messiah. And that line is traced and tracked. So it's no surprise when we get to the Gospel of Luke, he follows the same line and brings it all the way to Jesus. So these names matter because there's a continuity in what God is doing. Another reason chapter 5 is here, as I mentioned, is we see it's not just the promise that has continuity, but the curse has continuity. And so death reigned over those from Adam to Moses, Right? Until the law was given, even those who didn't sin in the, way, uh, in the way of Noah. And then the question becomes, well, what do we do with all of the ages? Okay, first off, there are some who just believe that these numbers are based on an accounting system we don't understand. And there is the slightest possibility of that, just merely because Hebrews don't have a numer- numerology. They just have their alphabet, and so they write numbers with letters. And so sometimes there's places in the Bible where like, this is either the number 635 or the word for cow. We, we can't tell. 
either fits the context, okay? Because that's how they were. It was actually the same uh, with the Greeks. It wasn't until Roman numerals that we started to move away and then Arabic numerals that we use today that we had its own number system. And so that can be confusing at time. Maybe there's something we don't understand. Maybe they measured a year differently than we do. There's possibilities, however. However, there are also some things that you have to give up that are not worth giving up if you assume that, okay? And one is when you lay this all out on a calendar and you look at things, you actually learn things. You'll actually see, as I saw, that all of these lives terminate when you'd expect them to in the flood, except for Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You learn that Enoch is removed right before the happening of the flood. Not only that, but you discover that the lives here overlap in such a way that the relationship between Adam at the beginning and Noah is only a generation removed. That there was a person alive who knew Adam and knew Noah. Okay. There's a continuity there that's, that's really fascinating. Now, on the other hand, this is not written to be a dating system that we can reverse engineer to the beginning. Okay. And some say maybe there's even gaps here. And the reason they say that is because in other genealogies, there are clearly gaps. Read Matthew's genealogy where he takes all of the genealogies and removes it down to 14, 14, and 14 because he wants to. He tells us he wants to. Okay? He's got the documents in front of them and he edits them. When we get to chapter 10, I would say that genealogy totally leaves room for that. This one, it's a lot harder to do. Why? Because it tells us after this amount of time, he fathered this son. And then he lived this amount of time and he died. That doesn't leave room for he fathered this son, who fathered this son, who fathered this son, who was actually the father of, right? It's way too specific for that. So why then? Why are the lives so long? There's things to keep in mind, and and one is the fact that we'll encounter in chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Now, there's another option, but it may be here that God is laying out the consequence, and we saw that, see that consequence play out, and so the shortest life in Genesis 5's genealogy is longer than the longest life in Genesis 10, okay? And by the time we get to the patriarchs, it balances out, and, and age still gets surprisingly old, but none of them exceed 120 years, okay? After Jacob, he's the last one who breaks that mark. There are those who say that maybe the flood was so cataclysmic that there's actually an environmental reason that life is harder. Uh, scientists actually have made a pretty good case saying that if there was such a thing like a firmament, as some people believe, an, an actual body of water that enveloped the earth and kept all the climate like a hothouse, tropical and good, and if that came raining down in the flood, then the UV rays that we would be exposed to after that would drastically change our life expectancy, okay? We're, we're just talking about a completely different thing. We'll talk about this next week, but the flood is a big deal for being uh, abnormal in the way that we look at history. Or it may just be that what we see is the curse slowly working its way out, and whether it's because death is beginning to reign more and more or because sin is reigning more and more, and so life expectancy is decreasing because we just don't know how to live anymore. Both of those, I would say, are, are relatively good possibilities. And like I said, the Bible is not unique in this area of pointing to something else, of pointing to something longer. 
Okay, I want to just uh, finish the first eight verses of chapter six and we're going to close tonight. And the reason we're not following the chapter breaks, I'll remind you, is because the chapter breaks are added later. And so we're reading to verse eight of chapter six because that's the toldot. The generations of Adam and Eve closes there in verse eight. And the new one, the generations of Noah, begins in verse nine. So six, verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as wives as they chose. Okay. Now, the first thing we have to ask is who cares? Right? When we look at this, we see two categories, the sons and the daughters, and they get married, the end. We're even told it happens in this time as, as generations are growing, although we only see a linear line of one son, Remember that these are many children having many children. We're seeing a population explosion on earth, okay? We've moved from city to civilization at this point. Um, But clearly that's not what it's being said here. Notice what it says again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters uh, were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Literally, it's the same word from Genesis 1 for good saw that they were good, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. See the correlation there? It's not just at that time God thought this to himself. It's because of this happening God thought to himself. It gets worse in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward... When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so let me put all the pieces together here. We see two groups of people coming, having sexual relations, and having children who are labeled as the Nephilim, who are labeled as mighty men, as men of old, men of renown. Now, in older translations, and I'm talking ancient translations, the word for Nephilim is turned into the word, the Latin word, gigantes, giants. Okay? If you have a King James Bible, it probably just says giants in this passage. And the reason is because when we get to the book of Numbers, we find the only other place where we find this word Nephilim, and it's when the spies go in to spy out the land, and they come back, and they say there's Nephilim there. We're like grasshoppers in their presence. Okay? But here, we're not given a description of that. What we do see is that somehow they're famous, and that they're mighty, okay? We also see consequence. God speaks and and gives a shorter sentence of life to mankind, and then verse five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great with the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was always evil continually. Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out the man whom I have created from the face of the land. In other words, the flood is a consequence of what we see beginning in verses 1 and 2. Okay. Now, what are the possibilities here? There are some who say that the sons of God is the lineage of Seth, that they're the good guys, and the daughters of men are the lineage of Cain. And so what we see here is a religious intermarrying, and once again, there's good reason to read it that way because we find that as being a constant problem and a constant danger throughout the history of Israel. It doesn't explain why the birth of those unions would lead to the Nephilim, whatever they are. Okay. There are others who say that the sons of God, uh, that term refers to royalty. And if you look in other ancient documents from this area, generally that was a title that kings took for themselves, son of God. 
Okay? We don't find any place where it speaks of all the kings of all the lands being the sons, plural, of God. Not only that, um, but the idea here then would be of a harem. That this isn't just polygamy, but they took anyone they choose. You remember that's what it said? And so we have the developing of a harem, and in that royal line, think of um, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, right? In that royal line, we have tyrants being birthed to rule. And that may be a possibility, but it doesn't explain this. And, and there's another problem with that. that. And this is the most important one. The contrast here is between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And that word for madam, or men, can you guess it? It's Adam. So saying the sons of God, I mean Seth's kids, and then Adam's kids doesn't make sense. Right? Uh, in the same way, saying the sons of God is royalty, and then using such a broad category, the daughters of men. Right? It's that word of men that makes this so difficult to leave in that place. When we look at how the phrase sons of God is used in other places in the Old Testament, it's used sparingly. We find it in the book of Job and we find it in Psalms, but thankfully we find it being used in the exact same way in both places, and that's speaking of angels. Okay? So for example, Job opens up as God gathers a council of the sons of God, and Satan, one of the sons of God, comes into the midst, and that's where Job begins. We find the thing, same thing in Psalms. And so... What we're seeing here, and I'm telling you uh, this interpretation because I believe it's the most likely. I know in another sense it's the most unlikely, right? The idea of some sort of angelic sexual liaison seems weird. But the question we have to ask before if we, uh, if we think it's reasonable is, is this what the author means? And when he uses the phrase sons of God, and by the way, the book of Job, most scholars believe is written contemporary to the times of Genesis, contemporary to the days of the patriarchs, then its usage, this is how they would have read it. Not only that, but the word here for Nephilim, clearly these are people the audience the author is writing to would know. That's why he calls them the Nephilim, right? Like if I said the Obamas, you're not going to go, which ones, right? We know the ones you're talking about. Here he says the Nephilim. And the phrase here is a unique one. The word for Nephilim isn't used in other places, and it literally just, the verb just means to fall. And so it may be here that these are the fallen ones. And so when we piece this together um, with how the angelic host is talked about, we have what we commonly call fallen angels. Okay? Now, once again, I know this is weird, but, but there is a reason I think that this is a viable option looking at the story of Genesis, and that's because Genesis has been following the path of the seed of the woman, and that's not the only path, right? There's another path, the seed of the serpent. Okay? And the idea here that we see actively throughout the scripture is not merely that God is moving towards a Messiah, but Satan is trying to interrupt that. And so later we have the book of Esther and what's happening in Esther. Haman is trying to wipe out all of the Jews. And what happens if all of the Jews are gone? No lineage to the Messiah. And we see as God miraculously takes care of it. Even when Jesus is born, what do we find? We find Herod. Right? And so this war is something that we can see. So it's no surprise when you get to Revelation chapter 12 and it says there was a war on heaven and earth and there was the woman with a child and a dragon whose desire was to what? To consume the child. Right? And so even the book of Revelation sees it in these terms. And so I don't like this phrase because I think it's an inaccurate portrayal and it's totally foreign to the thinking of this text. But what we're seeing here is a poisoning of the gene pool. Okay? We're seeing interference spiritual interference. 
Now, that being said, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First is that, uh, that from any other mythology where you have the demigods, right, these children of the gods like Hercules, what you have are people who are half man and half god, and they're not merely heroes like the Nephilim here, they're immortals, right? Have you seen Percy Jackson? It's a big deal. Um, that's not what we get here. So even if what we're seeing here is a better explanation of these mythologies, if it's actually interacting with what everybody else thought of the sons of God and Nephilim in their times, which I think is an accurate appraisal, it sets it right and says, even the byproduct of this was only men. And they all die in the flood. So why is it that we find Nephilim in numbers? Most likely that's the spies trying to make a good case. right? And so they say, the Nephilim are there. Right? They're making a reference from the history of the world to try and make things scarier. They don't actually think they saw the Nephilim. They're making a comparison by using the word, which is something we do in English all the time. Okay. But nonetheless, we have this crazy and weird happening. Uh, if you want to read a fictional account of this that's just intriguing to read, Madeline Engel in her... Um, it's not a sequel, but it's in the series that begins with A Wrinkle in Time. I think it's the fourth, might even be the fifth book in that series, a book called Many Waters. She sends her characters back in time to the days preceding the flood, and it's totally fascinating. She takes the Nephilim and she personifies them, and she walks through this whole thing, and there's unicorns, and I mean, it's Angle, so there's all sorts of things going on. She calls it Many Waters, by the way, and this is why I think the book is worth reading, because for her, a worldwide judgment like the flood, it's hard. She struggles with it as a concept. She has a hard time reconciling it with a loving God. And so she takes her title from Song of Solomon where it says, many waters cannot quench love. And what she's saying is, God's love is great enough that even if I can't understand this, even if I therapeutically need to tell this story for myself, and you watch as all the characters are wrestling with the reality because you have two people who know what's coming in a community that does not, and they're trying to get everything to balance out even so they can be comfortable with it and they can't. And so it's worth reading just to wrestle through that, but it's also a fascinating personification, picturesque way of thinking through the Nephilim and the things that are leading to this. But ultimately what we're seeing here are these inappropriate liaisons. And so we saw in the beginning man, woman, two become one flesh. We saw Lamech pushing the boundaries of that, and now we see something drastic, right? Now, why am I comfortable with this belief? It's because it appears that's what the New Testament authors believed this passage taught. Okay, both Peter and Jude reference this account and seem to reference it in this way. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. This is Peter talking in his first letter. He says here in 1 Peter chapter 3, In verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen to this in verse 19, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So what it says here is that after Jesus was raised, that he went and spoke to, it's just called those in prison. And in some, uh, some uh, translations, it says he preached to them. 
So one weird way to read this is that he went and evangelized those who are already dead and told them, I've died for you, come with me. But it points specifically to them being those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Okay? Now hold that thought and then listen to what he says in another of his letters in 2 Peter. This is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains, sound familiar, imprisoned, of the gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah as a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, now why am I still reading? Because he lays out these accounts chronologically. And so we see a judgment of angels, and then we see the flood, and then we see Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's one last piece to this puzzle as we move over to Jude. Jude and Peter wrote their letters together. And I can say that relatively confidently, even though I wasn't there, because the structure and the topics they deal with are the same. The wording's different because they wrote them to their own people in their own words, but it's not a surprise that both of them reference this moment right here. And it's also a benefit to us because it means that we can hear what they're talking about in stereo. And so here we see something that involved angels and disobedience before the flood. Now finally and fully listen to how Jude talks about it in Jude verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great, great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire. So he references both of the stories here, but the emphasis here isn't on and then, and then, and then. It's, they're similar. He says that Sodom and Gomorrah likewise indulged in what? Sexual immorality. What the, is the likewise pointing to? The angels. Okay, and so we see this repeated pointing to something that seems totally mystifying to us, but I'll just tell you right now that all of the Jewish interpreters before Jesus saw these as angels. All of them. In fact, all of the early church fathers leading up to Augustine saw this as angels. It was only with Augustine that he started to talk about uh, intermarrying between God's people and not God's people. And Calvin and Luther followed in his footsteps. But when we look at the New Testament, it constantly points to this as being a serious deal that God has enchained these angels and they're awaiting the judgment, right? In the days of Noah, all the pieces are where we'd expect them to be. Now, I'm going to give you a principle of understanding the Bible that I think is really important. In fact, I'll give you two. The first one's a bonus. The best way to understand the scripture is to keep reading. Okay, and a lot of times the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so sometimes we go, well, we don't know what's going on here. And light comes from other sources. But the second thing I want to say is that it can be easy to interpret the Bible in a way that makes us comfortable. And I'll tell you right up front that this passage, I've changed my mind on. The first time I ever read what I just explained to you was in a book by a man named Henry Morris, and I was so frustrated, I literally threw it across the room. In the history of my life, I'm a book lover, that's the only time I've ever done that. I just thought that that interpretation was ridiculous, and that it was clearly the sons of God being, you know, Christians, for lack of a better word, and the daughters of men being not Christians. But as I continue to read and as I continue to study, I realize that 
that it's just an untenable position. That the uh, legwork you have to do to explain what Peter and Jude could be talking about if they're not referring to this is just harder. There was a Greek, uh, a Greek teacher by the name of Occam, and he gave us a principle we call Occam's razor. And it's simply this, that the less assumptions are made in an understanding of something, the more likely it is to be true. Okay? So I can say to you, assuming that your grandfather was German and assuming that he went to this bar on the third street in Berlin and assuming that while he was there he ordered a pastrami sandwich, I'm pretty convinced that you have a heart condition. Right? The jumps are too big for us to go, well, oh, that's a viable interpretation. What you have to do oftentimes in the Bible is settle for the most simple understanding, even if it's the most miraculous, even if it's the most confusing. Okay? And like I said, once you do that, and then you go, okay, well, does this fit what the Bible says about the angelic realm? Does it fit what the Bible says about Satan's intentions and his plans? Um, then you have room to, to understand and answer these questions. If you want to disagree with me, I think that's totally fine. This is far from a salvation issue, and it won't hinder much of your understanding of your Bible. But I warn you, if you seek to understand 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, it will be laughable. And you will have to say things that won't come across as believable. Uh, and I've, I've watched it. They, they say weird things. So, for example, one commentator says about 1 Peter that what he really means when he says that Jesus preached to those who were in prison is that he preached through, through Noah. And you're like, what? I mean, that's true. Noah was probably a preacher in proclaiming things. That makes a lot of sense. But in the story that Peter is telling, for him to suddenly say, and after the resurrection, he preached to those in prison through Noah during the flood, it's, it's like you have to anticipate the guy's got complete ADD. Right? The simplest understanding is to go, well, what does Jude say about this? And we find more information. In fact, Jude's understanding follows the ancient document we know as First Enoch. And it's, his wording is very close to First Enoch. And I know that Jude read First Enoch because later in the book he quotes it. Okay? And First Enoch predates the New Testament. It comes from that same understanding that I was presenting. But what does it really mean and what does it really matter? It means that just like in Genesis 3, we have to recognize the Bible sees evil as being a reality beyond you. Not merely just a human problem. Not merely something that just reduces down to environment and human beings, that there really is an enemy of humanity and that he's active. Let's finish here. Now, that's not the whole story because it'd be easy to go, well, if angels are at fault, why does he judge human beings? But what we see is a partnership here between these angels and humans, and then we see this in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear all the modifiers there? Okay, first, it's not just Cain. It's not just Adam. It's the whole world, right? All of civilization. Then what does he say? He says um, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, of mankind was great in the earth, and then every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, and so what we're seeing is a terrible degradation here. And what we're seeing is the full strength of original sin. If you are going to receive the tonic that Christianity offers, this is the diagnosis. 
And, and I'll tell you a, a simple truth about this, that if I handed you a shovel and said, dig a hole that represents your sinfulness, you'd never dig it as deep as God would. Right? We, we can't see this as well, but this is God looking down from heaven and saying, this is mankind that I've created. Why do we always tell movies about robots who see what mankind have done and realize the best thing they can do to save the earth is to kill mankind? Okay, it's because sometimes we get this. We just usually think it's their problem. We blame the Nazis and we don't recognize it in ourselves. But let's finish up here, verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he'd made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. There's pain here. Okay, it's not just the blood crying out to the ground for justice, but in God's own heart, there's pain in the consequence of what he created harming what he created. Inflicting it on yourself, inflicting it on others, not bringing glory to him. It grieves him. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. Now, if you're an environmentalist, you might call foul and go, if it's human beings' fault, then why do the animals die in the flood? Here's a principle of life. When consequences are meted out to those who are responsible for others, the others suffer too. That's just, that's just how life works. You cannot keep the consequences to yourself and not harm your children. And if you're a president, or an emperor, or a king, and you get the full consequence of your sins, sometimes that's going to mean your entire nation is imprisoned. Right? That's how life works. It's just part and parcel with it. And the thing is that the Bible takes very seriously the idea of responsibility. And when we fail in our responsibilities, we fail those who we are responsible for. That goes hand in hand. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of the whole earth, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a contrast made here. What we read leading up to this point, remember what it'd be like to read this for the first time? It sounds hopeless, right? We, we wonder how you get from this consequence, I'll blot it all out, I'll wipe out everything, to us even being here and sitting here today. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And here's, here's what I want to point to to close tonight. You have to be willing, if you're going to be a Christian, on taking the diagnosis that the Bible presents. And if you're not happy with this description, then read Romans 3. It's not going to do any better there. He's going to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's no soundness in us. That we're rotten to the core. He just goes on. He grabs verses from all over the Bible and strings them together like a big, ugly necklace and says, wear this. It makes me think of you. And if you dug that hole, you'd never dig it deep enough. But, but what we find here, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord already points to the solution and we need to understand what the solution is. Now I know if you've read the story, you might go, well, yeah, that's because Noah was righteous. Now that hasn't happened yet. That comes next. Even the idea of finding favor in the eyes of the Lord points to what in the New Testament we call grace. Okay? Why does God favor Noah? Because God is a gracious God. What he shows on Noah is not justice. Noah, you're the only righteous one, so I'm saving you. It's mercy. Noah, you, like the rest of mankind, is wicked, but I'm saving you. Okay? That's what's communicated here, and we'll see that this is walked out. And it shouldn't be a surprise if you understand the Christianity presented in the New Testament that what begins with grace ends in actual righteousness. Because it's the same thing the Bible says that God is doing in us. 
What's important, though, is keeping the horse before the cart. That grace, the free gift of salvation, comes first, and the salvation entails righteousness. Okay? That as Luther liked to say, uh, actually it was probably Calvin, we are not saved by works, we're saved unto works. Right? We're saved so that God can work in and through us good works. And it's the same in Noah's life. And I know that I have to close this in the context of the reality of judgment and consequence for everyone else and a lot left on the table, but I want to go back to that image of the hole that you dug. Like I said, as deep as you dug it, God would dig it deeper. You'll never dig it deep enough to dig your own sin. But if God's love was water, no matter how deep you dug it, it would overflow it. If his forgiveness was water, no matter how deep you dug it, it would overflow it. The whole beauty of what is being presented here in Genesis and is reaffirmed through the rest of the Bible is not Tim Shell. It's not you, you may. You might just make it. If you try a little harder, if you dust yourself off and keep going, it's God is gracious and merciful and he can provide what you can't. And even here in Noah, we find that communicated and we'll see it again in Abraham. In fact, I'll spoil the plot. Joshua tells us that Abraham was a pagan worshiping pagan gods when God called him. He wasn't the last and final faithful and God said, I've elected you for a special mission because you've got the most brownie points. No, he just graciously called him, chose him out of the blue. Let's pray. Father, I love going through this study because I know that much that we're encountering here is foreign and unfamiliar. Probably many who are seated here have never sat through a sermon series on the flood. The last time they heard about the flood was in children's ministry. But I also rejoice because in in the unforeignness we find the self-same God, the same plan of salvation, the same character, We find hints and illusions and foreshadowing in the beginning of the culmination that is to come in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, as we continue to do this, that we would see not merely the big picture of what you have done, but the goodness of your plan. And I pray that you would help us to be better readers of the Bible who would hold on in humility when we don't understand and listen further and read deeper and think stronger. And I pray as well that you would just help us to know you. You took so much time to reveal yourself to mankind. You sent your son that we might know you. You wrote it down in a book and said, here, this is who I am and this is what I've done. You send your spirit to speak into our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that we would know you as as Matt prayed before during our worship time, that that would be the pursuit of our life, to know and love you more. We thank you for who you are and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night. Thank you.